there's still a lot of mismanagement, poor spending habits from even companies that are incredibly well-funded. There's the company you've probably heard of. They're fairly large. And right now the owners, the two primaries are being sued by several of their investors for basically what amounts to misappropriation of funds, where they have total control over their books. They have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and simply spend it as they will beyond their acquisitions and uh, licensing that they have done. There's that. So, I mean, it's really all over the board. And he told them, like, you guys are going to waste a million dollars. You're going to have this whole crop fail. And they told him, well, we'll just spend another million. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. And today we have two special guests here today. One, we have Carlo, and he is a cannabis technology consultant from Vancouver, BC. Hey, everybody, Hey, Spend Management uh, podcast. And we also have Chris Cody, the CEO of Highly Functioning. Hello, everybody. Hey, Chris. And we're so excited to have you here today just because um, I know we're running a special segment on cannabis. So we're really excited to hear from you on what the space is like right now. How is it like managing the finances of a cannabis business and also what you have learned throughout the years? Yeah, it's been a very interesting uh, experience just from start to finish, I have to say. Uh, there's so many different regulatory and tax implications for all this stuff. Maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, more about yourself and your previous roles, because we looked at your LinkedIn a little bit and we um, noticed that you opened your own dispensary uh, called Urban Legends. Can you give us a little bit of that experience and tell us a little bit more about your role there? Yeah, so in 2011, I uh, founded a company called Urban Legends. It was a medical marijuana dispensary in Washington State, just south of Seattle. And uh, it was very, very interesting. I mean, very Wild West. Basically, what you needed then was at least a small little nest egg. You know, I think between me and my partner and uh, my wife, we had about 20 grand. And it was really just about finding a landlord who would rent to you. It was kind of a gray market and very challenging just to find that part. And so I'd spent a few months looking around and finally had found a location that I could uh, set up in. It was real basic stuff. The state here was going to be uh, passing rules, and then they didn't. And so that became this very confusing situation where there was going to be uh, state regulation, and then there was not. And so from that, I became very involved in the political process. I uh, helped form a... Uh, industry organization here called the Coalition for Cannabis Standards and Ethics. The city of Seattle had come to a bunch of us operators who they had allowed to open, thinking that this regulatory environment was going to exist. And uh, then they they said, well, can you guys put together some self-policing rules, some standards that you will adhere to so that we at least have some good actors to point at? And so that's what we did. We spent about a year putting that together. And the whole time, each one of us, small business owner running our own businesses, Uh, But uh, activism was kind of foisted upon some of us. Some of the operators were also activists. And uh, yeah, we kind of ground that out in a very unregulated environment. You know, within about a year of me opening my store, there were 10 stores within three blocks, very intense competition, very much a race to the bottom for the pricing. 
one of those businesses was a, uh, what did they call it, farmer's market. So it would be 30-odd tables set up from uh, producers who would just grow in their basements or garages or maybe drive it up from Oregon or California and just sell it right there out of that store. Anyway, so a lot of competition, very interesting. And then we had legalization come, which opened up a whole new raft of problems. So here in Washington, they did a lottery that myself and my partner entered, and we won a few of those licenses. And then we realized, how are we going to raise money? There are rules about where you could place the stores, and there was limited availability for real estate because of the, uh, the buffers and the requirements of distancing from schools and whatnot. And especially in the city of Seattle, there are dozens of schools and then also preschools and daycares and libraries and all these things that you couldn't be near. And so the difficulty was trying to simply find a location. And then once you found a location, how do you secure the lease or maybe even the purchase? And, uh, you know, a lot of business owners in the same position, everybody had different solutions. You know, maybe you had a wealthy uncle or you had done pretty well in medical and you had a pretty significant bankroll, literally cash in most cases. But uh, just being able to get a shop up and running was very difficult. Some people lucked out, their locations already buffered and they had a good relationship with their landlord. For us, uh, we had to try to cut a deal with a group that had secured a lease and uh, you know they were going to build out the shop and provide the funding, and that did not go well. We ended up essentially losing that business. They had to pay us out after a year and a half of disagreements as to how it was all going to go. And that's very common in this business. I can't tell you how many companies have folded or had significant troubles because of partnership arguments, disagreements, much of it around the finances. You know, parlay a lot of that experience along with my lobbying efforts. We were able to get a path to licensure again, and that's when I was able to open uh, Urban Legends downtown in Seattle, which is still a going concern. I sold out of that uh, a year or two ago, and since then I've been focused on the national legalization, at least, uh, you know, state by state, following, tracking, and then also taking on clients, mostly in the retail realm people trying to set up shops in the most efficient way possible. You know, when I was talking about those financial difficulties, especially the taxes, many people just coming into the industry don't really understand what the IRS tax code 280E is and what it means for your bottom line. So that's been a real challenge. So parlayed that into consulting. And, uh, you know, I've been up and down the coast, uh, down to California quite a bit, helping people uh, do, you know, mergers and acquisitions, uh, also go through licensing applications, just setting up their doing their layouts and helping them with their center, uh, their SOPs so they can be ready to go when opening day comes and be able to actually get to opening day, which is pretty difficult. That's actually really interesting that you've uh, met. You mentioned that, I guess in terms of like the people that call you looking for help in terms of like when it comes to finance, what are their biggest concerns? Well, I'll tell you, most of them don't actually consider the finance, you know, in my experience, you've got two basic kinds of entrepreneurs in this space. The first kind is rapidly disappearing, and that's the kind of mom and pop shops. You know, they're also called maybe heritage stores or legacy brands. These are the guys who've been in business, you know, in California since the early 2000s and Washington since like the late 2000s. A lot of them came up in the black market, gray market, the financing portion, the finances, I would say there's a strong strain of economic ignorance 
people don't necessarily understand cash flow. They don't understand like budgeting, you know, very basic things. They haven't really needed to use them for a very long time. Lots of issues there. So I just wanted to do like a follow-up question to Carlos' point. So I know what the situation of the gray market at that time when you opened your own dispensary and now with legalization coming into the States. Um, just wondering, how do you think business owners are now currently managing their books? So the other kind is not the mom and pops. It's the corporate guys coming in now. Um, most of it's private equity. And in a lot of cases, what I've seen is the people bringing in the money act as the CFOs. You know, if it's a big enough fund, you know, like like there's different sizes, right? There's some groups that are just trying to set up like one large grow, which is pretty significant in and of itself. There's other groups that are setting up chains of grows or chains of stores. And for those folks, a lot of them come from finance in some way. A lot of it's real estate money. In terms of regular processes, yeah, they do have that. They do have, you know, budgets and forecasting and all of that. Um, what I've seen, though, is there's still a lot of... I would say mismanagement, poor spending habits from even companies that are incredibly well-funded. There's the company MedMen, which you've probably heard of. They're fairly large. And right now the owners, the two primaries are being sued by several of their uh, investors for basically what amounts to misappropriation of funds, where they have total control over their books. They have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and simply spend it as they will beyond their acquisitions and uh, licensing that they have done. There's that. So, I mean, it's really all over the board. There are some companies that are very well run, some mom and pop shops who understood finance and budgeting and all that up front. And they have been able to, you know, if, as long as their business itself is strong, their location's good and everything else, they've been able to parlay that into significant funds and are now able to find pretty decent rates on hard money from private equity. And the other side of it is guys who, these larger conglomerates that know how to, how to raise money, um, but maybe aren't so much versed in actually running the businesses. And so those companies are able to actually have a large footprint, but they're not run very efficiently. They have a lot of issues with their budgeting, with their spending, not really understanding where to put their marketing dollars, not really understanding how much they need to set aside for their tax burden. Maybe you can give the audience a little bit clarification on the differences, because I know some of our viewers are in the States. So definitely around that kind of legal uh, regulations, there's definitely a lot of difference there. Yeah. Okay. In the United States, there's a special tax code called 280E, which was written in the 80s, mostly to kind of go after Coke dealers, people running up cocaine from Colombia. And it goes back to an old United States tax law, which is uh, that you pay taxes on what you earn, not what you do. So it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal, you're still liable for your taxes, right? Anyway, what 280E does is it means that you cannot write off basic expenses. Like you can write off your cost of goods sold, right? But you can't write off your employees. You cannot write off your rent. You can be somewhat creative if your processes allow to roll some of that expense into your cost of goods. But Anything that's considered trafficking by the IRS is non-deductible, which means that whatever your payroll is, whatever your rent is, you have to add that to your income and you have to set aside cash for that based, you know, as it is income, which means that your end tax burden ends up being higher than it would be significantly. That was a really great explanation. Thank you for that. So I guess in terms of your company highly functioning, so you, you manage grows brands, retail outlets, real estate, what kind of tools do you think make a responsible company, cannabis company need in order to survive? 
Well, certainly, you know, tax planning is a big one and having a very good standard operating procedure manual. Having those positions defined, making sure that people operate within their roles, making sure that you can back up your explanations in an audit to be able to tie things into your cost of goods sold that are directly related. It's very important. It's happening now in California where a lot of companies, they've been licensed legal for a year. And now they've all got traceability software now. They're tracking everything. And now they're not able to push stuff under the rug. It's all tracked. So they're starting to look at their now tax burdens and they're, they're going to be, they're significant. If a store does, like say a store does about 5 million annual gross, you are looking at maybe a million dollar tax burden. Pretty significant. It's nearly 20%. And then once you add in all your other expenses, I mean, most of the properties that are involved in these uh, transactions, especially for like a decently cited retail location, they definitely get a premium. If you bought it, if you were able to purchase it, that's you have those holding costs. If you weren't able to purchase it and you're paying an extremely high lease, same problem. You can't write that off. So being responsible, yeah. I mean, you just have to be very, very organized. You have to have a good team that uh, understands all of these things. They understand compliance because it's less of a uh, marijuana or cannabis selling business. It's more of a government compliant business. That's what I tell everybody whenever I go in any shop. I say, like, we're, we're in government compliance these days. We have to maintain seed to sale traceability, can't endanger the license, can't endanger our ability to operate. And so that needs to be priority one, right next to, you know, generating as much revenue as we can. That's uh, actually really interesting that you talked about compliance. I've actually been in contact with a few retail shops. In terms of the state regulated compliance software, what are some of the gaps that you find is missing when it comes to managing their spending? Well, number one, none of the systems I've used are, they're compliance systems. They're not for managing your spending. The most they do is, uh, you know, you can place orders through vendors, have them come in. The whole point is to make sure that all of that stuff is counted when it arrives, tracked and traced, paid. Outside of Washington, a lot of it's done in cash. Washington has banking, but most of the country does not. Although that's hopefully changing. There's a bill right now in the U.S. Congress that could allow for cannabis banking to be legalized finally. But, uh, you know, like I said, the compliance software, his whole job is to just be compliant. You can do histories. You can get your spreadsheets downloaded. They're supposed to integrate with QuickBooks. Most of the systems that I use don't. We have to, you know, print out our spreadsheets and then in a lot of cases, input that data into QuickBooks manually to be able to manage and uh, generate forecasts and everything. Mm -hmm. In terms of the systems that you've used in the past, can you kind of describe what systems you have used that are for compliance and that don't really do the job that you're saying? Well, there's about a hundred different solutions right now. Biotrack, Metric, Leaf, then there's uh, Greenbits, Corona, Indica Online. Those are the ones I'm most familiar with. There's easily another 50. There's lots of tech guys who want to try to like solve problems. In my experience, what they've kind of done is you know, I mean, especially the earlier systems, a lot of them were scabbed on. Oh, yeah, like MMJ Menu, MMJ Freeway. Those were products that were meant for a different business and that were repurposed for cannabis. And uh, those never really worked well for me in terms of like really being able to see a solid snapshot of your inventory, keeping things like very square. I mean, it's been difficult. Like generally speaking, you've got a bookkeeper and then a CPA. And then you're going over the numbers uh, pretty regularly with both of them to make sure everything's coherent and that you're 
hitting your budgets. Totally. And speaking of uh, hitting your budgets, I'm just wondering, what are some misconceptions when it comes to cannabis CFOs and uh, compliance when it comes to financial controls? Because you mentioned a lot of these businesses nowadays, you have like the big corporations and then you have the mom and pops. So with the financial controls, like obviously if it's a bigger corporation, usually you have like a finance team there to kind of enforce, you know, policies and procedures. But with like the smaller shops that are trying to scale up their processes, what are some things that they lack? Discipline. Uh, you know, the mom and pops have a real problem in that, like, a lot of them actually have, like, a mom and pop, you know, and your family yeah. around. I've seen it where, like, you know, guys, the owner's dad come in, just pull cash out of the till, give stuff away for free to customers, that kind of stuff. When I try to tell the guy, like, you know, you got to get your dad out of here, man. <laughs> He's just like, your dad. He doesn't want to get rid of him. You know, he trusts him, you know, and he doesn't mind that he takes some money from the till from now and then. So, Okay. You know, that was that was a difficult conversation to have and it didn't really go well. Wow. For me. But, you know, that's not just the mom and pops. You know, the other thing I've seen is that a lot of these bigger companies that are managed to raise all this money, they just, men, men notwithstanding, a lot of them have real budgetary issues where they don't have a real control. There's usually, you know, a group of owners at the top, people who hold equity and, you know, are signers on the bank accounts. And they will spend, you know, some of them, they're making plenty of cash and some of them are, have just raised plenty of cash. And you understand the difference there. It's just weird when you go into a, an office, a set of offices that are very nice, you're looking around and you're trying to figure out what the company actually does. Um, you see like a, some kind of like famous artist piece on the wall, hazard to say a Picasso or something. You're like, well, what do you guys actually do? <laughs> you know, and it's difficult, you know, especially like, like I am very deep in the industry. So I kind of hear about, you know, I'm like, well, what's, what's up with these guys? What are they doing? You know, and I'll, I'll dig down to it and I'll find out like, oh yeah, no, they had a, you know, a huge grow that had failed this last year. And now, now they're doing something else. I don't know, but they managed to raise enough capital that they can sit that out. A friend of mine was doing consulting for a large grow here in Washington and he was going through their facility and they did not have a good SOP. In fact, it was terrible. They were tracking uh, powdery mildew and mites from room to room without any kind of uh, clean processes to mitigate that. Oh, wow. And he told them, like, you guys are going to waste a million dollars. You're going to have this whole crop fail. And they told him, well, we'll just spend another million. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Get it right. Yeah. There is a whole lot of that, especially in these bigger groups. You know, once you've raised $100 million, especially if you've never had that much money, you know, it's pretty significant. And, you know, you kind of just stop counting. Yeah. So that's really surprising to us because, like, you, you would think that with all these uh, VC-backed resources, they would be able to have more of, like, a, I guess, robust way of tracking these finances. And, you know, you mentioned that cannabis is a heavily, you know, audited and uh, compliant industry. So how are they able to get away with things like that? Well, when you say auditing, you're talking about money. Yeah. When the government says auditing, they're talking about inventory. Mm -hmm. They're not linked. I mean, not, not in like a practical way here, right? The government doesn't care like if you blow every penny you've got, but you better not lose an eighth a pot because that's a violation. Mm, gotcha. That's the biggest difference. And like I said, not every company is like this. There's plenty that are responsibly run and are doing very well, but it's just running the gamut. And uh, another thing I would hazard to say is like some of these big idea guys, you know, these VCs, they get maybe carried away, get sucked into the freestyle of the industry in general and uh, kind of lose focus. 
Or, you know, there's other companies where they've got the budget to lose money for a decade and they're just comfortable with it already. And I've seen that as well. That's really interesting on how the difference with the auditing and like what the government actually looks for. I guess in terms of the supply chain and procurement seem to be big pain points based on some business owners we've spoken to. How does having a compliance software work with a procurement department in cannabis? Well, I mean, it's, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, the procurement department really needs like a budget from the, uh, from the CPA or bookkeeper, right? And that just tells them like, you've got some rough projections, so you know about what you're going to do for that month. And so you get a budget uh, on, for your buying, for like a retailer anyway. And most of my perspective here is from the retail side, by the way. Grows is a little bit different. So, yeah, so the procurement department, the buyer, right, there's usually like every store or group of stores has a single buyer. And that buyer goes out to farms and discusses terms and places orders. The responsible ones, the best ones, you know, they don't wait for the salesman to come around and provide samples. They'll go and go to the farms and see how the product's being grown to find out if it's going to be a good product for their store. You know, something that'll have a good consumer response and encourage repeat clientele. you know, the software itself, I mean, it's straightforward. The hard parts with it are, you know, there's gaps, there's data ghosts uh, from time to time, uh, especially, you know, the point of sale systems are not generally the same, like they're integrated with the state track and trace systems, but they're not the same systems. So sometimes one loses products or it mislabels products, which can cause a lot of lost time and tracking that down in an inventory audit. You know, there's all sorts of barcode errors. There's also just basic uh, employee errors where you've got a, uh, an employee ringing up a, a barcode that's a different lot, but the same product. So if you've got one strain, say Blue Dream, right? So many growers grow Blue Dream because it's a great producer. Um, but then the state has rules on like how large a lot can be, right? So it's five pounds of Blue Dream is a single lot, right? If you have a giant grow, you have maybe 100 lots. I don't know, maybe 20 lots. Each one of those lots ends up with a different barcode, but they're the same product. So at the end user, you know, when your, your bud tender is ringing up a, a customer, you know, they've got something in the display, uh, you know, that's just displayed for the customers to see. And they'll pull that out. They ring it up. It goes into the system. The system is tracking a different barcode now. And then you're pulling the old barcode or the new barcode out of your inventory to actually make the sale. That can lead to, you know, especially if that happens a few times a day over the course of a month can be a lot of time to track all that down and figure out like where everything went and just making those corrections in the system. What kind of tools do you recommend to your clients when it comes to managing and tracking spend? As well as, are there any features that you wish the industry offered? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, like the tools you need are just just good forecasting, good bookkeeper, good CPA, and uh, just good forecasting as you can get so you can really optimize your bottom line. What I really wish is that, and like I said, I could be wrong right now. I hope I'm not, but uh, having an actual uh, point of sale system that is integrated with QuickBooks. So you can simply like, you know, run all the numbers directly into QuickBooks and not have to, you know, pay somebody to input them all and try to sort them out. Um, That would be a super handy tool. Yeah. When you mentioned QuickBooks, do you think a majority of the industry, that's kind of like a standard uh, accounting, uh, accounting solution that everybody uses? A lot of them do. There's maybe some private accounting software uh, used by the CPAs who represent these companies. 
that they use, maybe internally uh, specific things like they wrote it for themselves if they're big enough. But anybody who's got their in-house bookkeeper, they're generally using a QuickBooks-like product. And do you think as a cannabis company scale, uh, do they usually look for a CFO or do you think they're usually okay with just hiring CPAs and bookkeepers to make sure that their books are clean? It really depends on the scale. If you're talking retail, it's like five shops or less. If you're talking grows, it's like maybe one large grow and you've just got like your internal team. But once you start jumping into different states, then people are looking for CFOs at that point because it's just too much to manage. You need somebody on, on board. And like I said, a lot of the CFOs that are currently doing it, they're finance guys who helped raise the money or even brought the money. A lot of them may end up just delegating it to somebody on their team already. Awesome. I guess the one last thing is like, what would you recommend to cannabis business owners to be more aware of its spend culture from someone who has uh, been in the cannabis industry for many years? What I would say is don't spend your money, man. <laughs> live, like you, live like you're making slightly better than minimum wage if you can. And uh, just, you know, write it out because especially in the States with the, with the tax code, like I said, you could end up owing for years if you don't save that million dollars or $600,000 or whatever it is that you have to like pay the IRS and then you don't have it and you got to set up a payment plan and then your next year's taxes come due and you still don't have that saved and you're now you're just stacking taxes on taxes on taxes and you're never going to get out of it. Wow. Yeah, that would be a nightmare. Yeah. You know, literally there's several companies I know of doing that, like they're in that position now or they're literally in receivership because of it. So... It's something you just got to got to keep in mind. And, you know, that should change as soon as it becomes you know legal here in the States. Um, but I got to think, you know, it's this, that same advice is applicable to Canada because you guys just generally have a higher tax rate anyway. Yeah. And I know Canadians are not unfamiliar with detailed tax planning. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, joining us today and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. This was an awesome conversation and I, I learned a lot from you. So thank you so much for coming here. Yeah, well, thanks, Carla. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.